What a great song to lead us into our time in God's Word, and I'm so grateful uh, to the Lord um, over these past uh, few weeks. Uh, It seems that um, every week he has very quickly, very clearly directed me to a particular text to preach on uh, that just seems to be the right fit for that week, and um, this week he did the same thing, and I'd like to invite you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8, which may sound like a random, obscure place in God's Word to go, but I think you'll agree with me once we get into this text how applicable it is for us today. So Deuteronomy chapter 8, and I want to read the entire chapter uh, because it all uh, goes together and I think it's important for us to understand the context of the one particular verse we're going to be zeroing in on today. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 1. All the commandments that I am commanding you today you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without scarcity, in which you will not lack anything." A land whose stones are iron and out of those hills and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery." He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint. In the wilderness he fed you manna which your fathers did not know that he might humble you, that he might test you to do good for you in the end. Otherwise you may say in your heart, my my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. 
It shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you today that you will surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. God, we thank you for your word and our confidence in the fact that every word was inspired by your spirit for our benefit, for our instruction, for our correction, to give us wisdom and insight. And uh, in this case, you've given us an opportunity to go to school on the Israelites and to learn from their example, both good and bad. And so I pray we'd be good learners today, good listeners today, and that you, your spirit, would give us insight into this text and particularly um, how it applies uh, to our lives in a personal way. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week I preached a message on how COVID-19 is a merciful warning from God to all mankind to repent or perish. Well, that is just one of a million ways that God is using this global pandemic to accomplish his sovereign plans and purposes in our lives and in the lives of people all over the world. God is constantly at work in the affairs of this world and the affairs of our lives in more ways than we will ever know. Many times things happen around the world and in our lives and we are left to wonder what, what God's up to. Some claim that God has nothing to do with things like the coronavirus or tornadoes or terrorist attacks or cancer. But based on what the Bible says, God is the ultimate cause of everything that happens in this world and in our lives, and so I think it's important for us to consider what God is doing through this infectious disease that continues to spread throughout the world. Granted, the age-old question of the origin of evil and where is God and how is God involved when bad things happen in our world or in our lives, it's, it's, it's difficult to get our finite minds around. God is not the originator or author of evil, but he ordained or decreed it as a way to put on display his glorious attributes in dealing with it. We saw that last week in the story of the man that was born blind in John chapter nine. I quoted a number of of passages last week in which God unapologetically claims responsibility for adversity and calamity. At the same time, however, the Bible clearly emphasizes that as a result of Satan's fall in heaven and man's fall in the garden, the entire creation has been cursed by sin and is being controlled by Satan, albeit his authority is delegated and his power is limited. And so how are we to apply this theology to a tragic event like the coronavirus. Well, I think it involves processing through 
the facts, the, the biblical facts, that diseases and getting sick is just a, all a part of living in a fallen, broken world that's cursed by sin, and Satan uses disease and sickness to wreak havoc in God's world and to steal and to kill and destroy. At the same time, God is sitting on his throne, sovereignly reigning and ruling over everything and everyone, including sin and including Satan, and he's able to wisely and mercifully use the ravages of sin and Satan to accomplish his purposes in this world and in our lives. The fact that God is sovereign over sin and sovereign over Satan gives us great comfort and hope knowing that we are not at the mercy of the arbitrary forces of nature, nor are we helpless victims of the random acts of Satan and his minions. Our lives are under the sovereign control of an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God who works all things together for our good and his glory, which is ultimately to conform us to his son Jesus, who he did not spare from the greatest act of evil in the history of the world to demonstrate his eternal, inseparable love for us. Well, all that is true. We are often left to struggle with the answer to the question, why? Why does God cause or permit or allow sad, painful, difficult, even horrific things to happen to us and to others. Well, today's text provides some answers for us to the question, why? Now, Deuteronomy may not be as familiar to us as some of the uh, more well-known books of the Old Testament and particularly the books we're far more familiar with in the New Testament, but the word Deuteronomy simply means second law. And God had uh, originally presented his law to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai right after he had miraculously delivered them from slavery to Egypt through the leadership of Moses. And from Mount Sinai, God led his people to a town called Kadesh Barnea, which is on the southwest edge of the land of Canaan, from where they sent 12 men uh, to spy out the land. When the spies returned, if you remember, uh, Joshua and Caleb gave a positive report and they were both absolutely convinced that God would help them conquer the Canaanites and settle in the promised land. But the other 10 spies gave a a negative report and they convinced their countrymen that they were no match for the Canaanites. And so they began to grumble against Moses and Aaron and attempted to kill them and appoint a new leader who would lead them back to Egypt. As a result, God punished their sinful unbelief by barring them from entering Canaan and making them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that entire generation died. By the time Moses wrote Deuteronomy, 40 years had passed. And once again, he led the nation of Israel to the edge of the promised land, this time to the east side of the Jordan River. And now he stood before all the children and grandchildren of those who had died off in the wilderness. 
And what he was doing here in the book of Deuteronomy was recounting Israel's history after the Exodus, which they all knew far too well since many of them were somewhere between a toddler and a teenager when their parents rebelled against the Lord and so they had spent most of their lives trudging around in the blistering heat and the blowing sand of the Sinai Peninsula within walking distance of the Promised Land. Moses' main goal in this book was to remind them of how God took care of them during those 40 years that they wandered in the wilderness And it was also to repeat to them the law that God had given originally to their parents and grandparents at Mount Sinai. And finally, to renew the covenant that God had made with their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Japheth. Moses knew that he would not be going into the promised land with them because of his own disobedient act of striking the rock rather than speaking to it like God had commanded. And so... The book of Deuteronomy really is Moses' farewell address to this new generation of Israelites before they were to enter the promised land. So Moses passed on those things he considered most important or more important than anything else, namely, in order for them to enjoy the many blessings that God had in store for them, they had to fear him and love him and obey him. Look at Deuteronomy chapter six. This is probably the most well-known passage uh, in this book. Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Look at also Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. Again, just giving you the the theme, I guess uh, you could say, of this book. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. Moses says this, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse, so choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him, for this is your life and the length of your days, that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. As you read through the book of Deuteronomy, you get this sense that Moses' main concern was that when they were no longer living in temporary tents but fine houses and when, when they were no longer eating manna but milk and honey, it would be easy for them to become forgetful and then to become unfaithful. And that's why in the passage that we're focusing on this morning, he he kept calling them to remember and not forget. 
Notice the five times this is mentioned in chapter 8, verse 2. He says, remember all the way which you, the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness. Verse 11, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments. Verse 14, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 18, but you shall remember the Lord your God. And then verse 19, it shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you today, you shall surely perish. Well, this morning I want to focus mainly on verse two. Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse two, since I think it helps us have a proper perspective when we find ourselves in what is often referred to as a wilderness experience, like the one that we're all in right now. I assume you're familiar with the expression wilderness experience, which is based on the Old Testament example of Israel. It um, describes a, a difficult, unpleasant season of our lives when we may experience traumatic trials or intensified temptations or personal attacks or multiplied burdens and pressures. It may involve some kind of spiritual or financial or um, physical or emotional drought where we lack joy and peace and contentment. We feel like we're all alone out in the middle of nowhere, trudging through a barren wasteland, looking for some solace and longing for some relief. Well, it should bring us some comfort that knowing that no believer can avoid the wilderness experience. It's just part of the journey that we're all on to becoming more like Jesus Christ. Every follower of Jesus goes through wilderness experiences, which God uses to humble us and test us to see whether or not we will remain faithful to him. Most of you, no doubt, have endured multiple God-ordained wilderness experiences, like a life-threatening illness, the death of a loved one, a, a prodigal child, a moral failure, uh, being slandered and having your reputation destroyed, uh, bankruptcy, unemployment, a struggling marriage. All of these wilderness experiences can last days, months, and maybe even years, depending on how long it takes for us to learn the lessons God wants to teach us through these divine tests. Now you know there's been lots of talk about being tested for the coronavirus. But whether or not you ever get tested for the coronavirus, the reality is we are all being tested by the coronavirus. COVID-19 is a God-ordained test to see whether or not we are going to fear him and love him and obey him no matter what happens to us. 
Specifically, I think he's using it to humble us by showing us how dependent we really are on him. And he's using it to expose the idols of our hearts, the things that we worship in place of him. So let's talk first of all about humility and then we'll talk about idolatry. Humility. Notice verse two. Moses writes, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you. What does it mean to be humble? Well, to be humble is to have a low estimation of your own importance, your own abilities, and your own achievements. On the other hand, to be prideful or arrogant or cocky is to think more highly of yourself, your abilities, your achievements than you should. And when you find yourself in the middle of the wilderness and there is literally nothing there, no food, no water, no shade, no stores, nothing but sun and sand and rocks and snakes and scorpions, You have to totally rely on God for provision and for protection. And so while the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, again, not just a, a few days, not just a few weeks or a few months, but 40 years, they couldn't help themselves at all. There was nothing they could do. They had no one else to turn to for help but God. And so God put them in a situation where they had to totally rely on him for everything. Especially the bare necessities of life. In other words, they had had no choice but to trust him or die. Notice how Moses expands on this humility in verse three. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. I mean, this is really hard for us to even relate to. Living for 40 years in a place where there were no grocery stores or drive-through restaurants to buy food to eat, where there was no gas stations or convenience stores to buy stuff to drink, where there was no retail stores to buy new clothes or, or sandals. And so God dropped frosted flakes from heaven every morning. That's sort of what he described them like these little wafers that were sweet. And so he dropped these from the sky every morning and he generated drinking water from rocks. And this was the best water they'd ever drank coming straight out of a rock. And he preserved their clothes and their sandals so that they never wore thin or got holes. I mean, I I wore grooves in in a brand new pair of Crocs walking around Epcot Center one day. 
I can't imagine what those Crocs would look like after 40 years, let alone what your feet would look like, but God kept their feet from swelling or getting blisters, and again, all these things were miraculous acts of God. This is not normal, this is not natural. This was supernatural. And in our case, with all of our money and all of our modern conveniences to rely on, sometimes we need to be reminded how dependent we really are on God. How he is the true source of everything that we have. And not everything, not just everything we have, but everything we've done, everything we can do, it's all, it's all a gift from God. And therefore, we must never become proud and take credit for and or trust in our own ingenuity, our own ability, our own liquidity, how much money we have or money we're able to make. Notice verse 11. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes which I am commanding you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint in the wilderness he led you he fed you manna which your fathers did not know that he might humble you that he might test you to do good for you in the end otherwise you may say in your heart my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth but you shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day This is a good reminder that our wealth, whatever level that is, is as miraculous as manna. God has provided that for you in the same way that he provided manna for the Israelites in the wilderness. And when God chooses to to bless us with much, It's easy to forget that everything we have ultimately comes from him. The prophet Jeremiah said it this way in Jeremiah 9, verse 23, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom and let not the mighty man boast of his might nor let a rich man boast of his riches but let him who boasts boast of this that he understands and knows me. So Moses said that God had led them into the wilderness for 40 years to humble them. Moses knew of what he spoke. You may remember in his younger years, Moses saw a fellow Israelite being beaten by an Egyptian and he took matters into his own hands and he sought to liberate his fellow Israelite and Israel as a nation from slavery to Egypt, but he did it in his own time and by his own wisdom and his own might. And consequently, God sent him into the wilderness for, you guessed it, 
40 years to humble him and teach him how to depend on the Lord. The book of Acts, Acts 7.22 says that when Moses lived in Egypt, he was a man of power in words and deeds. In other words, he was an impressive force when he would speak or act. People would be moved by something he would say or something he would do. But after spending all those years in the wilderness, he felt completely inadequate to serve as God's deliverer. And he asked God to have Aaron accompany him to be his spokesman, to be his mouthpiece. That's a pretty dramatic change. In fact, it says in Numbers 12, verse three, that Moses was, quote, the most humble man on earth. 40 years in the wilderness will do that to a man. Wilderness experiences breed humility. So let me ask you, how is God using the coronavirus to humble you? Are you becoming less self-sufficient and developing a a greater dependence or reliance on God for provision and protection? Hopefully when this thing is over and we're out of the wilderness, per se, you'll be more humble. You'll be more dependent. You'll be less self-sufficient and more reliant on the Lord. So the first thing that God was concerned about in the lives of the Israelites, his people, was humility. The second thing he was concerned about in the lives of his people, particularly the hearts of his people, was idolatry. Idolatry. Notice again back in verse two, you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you, here it is, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Obviously, God knew what was in their hearts. God is omniscient or all-knowing and all things are laid bare and open before his eyes. And so he already knew what was in their hearts. He was also fully aware of their future and whether or not they would be faithful to keep his commandments or not. But I think God wanted them to know what was in their hearts. They needed to know what was in their hearts. And the only way for that to happen was to put them in the wilderness for a while to see what came out of their mouths and out in their actions and attitudes. How do you respond when you're hungry and thirsty? There was a whole lot of hangry people 
walking around in the wilderness. And their heart was coming out in their words and their actions and their attitudes. And so God wanted to see how they would respond when the pressure was on and there was, again, nothing to drink, there was nothing to eat. Would they grumble and complain? Or would they praise him and trust him? It's kind of like squeezing a, squeezing a, a sponge, right? If you, you, whenever you squeeze a sponge, whatever's in that sponge is gonna come out. And so at various times in our lives, God squeezes us, if you will. He puts us through tests or trials to see what we will do, which is really far more revealing for us than it is for him. When life is good and there's not much, exert, not much exerting pressure on us, it's easy to assume that we're more godly and mature than we actually are. But when life gets hard and there's all sorts of pressure put on us, that's, that's the true test of where we're at with the Lord. And God uses difficult times to expose what we could call the idols in our hearts. In other words, all the things that we worship other than him. We need to understand the, 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 how important the, 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 and foundational the concept of the heart is to our sanctification and that is to understand that the heart is the mission control center of our lives. It creates and controls all of our thoughts and desires and motives and goals and choices and habits and words and actions and attitudes and and so we need to understand that, that sinful words and sinful actions and sinful attitudes are a result of sinful thoughts, sinful desires, sinful motives in our hearts. One of the clearest explanations or examples of this fact is in James chapter four, verse one. James asks, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? In other words, why are you guys not getting along? Why, why are you fighting? Why are you arguing with one another? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. In other words, the real issue is not what's going on or happening on the outside, but what's going on or what's happening on the inside. I think the favorite, my favorite line I've ever read from one of John Piper's books is this. He wrote in uh, the book Future Grace this profound statement. Sin is what we do when our hearts are not satisfied with God. Sin is what we do when our hearts are not satisfied with God. In other words, whenever we sin, that is evidence that we have turned away from worshiping God or trusting God or finding satisfaction in Him alone and are seeking pleasure or comfort or refuge in someone or something other than God. It could be food. It could be alcohol. 
It could be drugs or sex or money or material things or comfort and ease or good health or the ability to control things in your life or it could be respect or reputation or success or security or your physical appearance or godly children or children who obey and respect you. See, worshiping or trusting in or seeking satisfaction in any of these things, in anything or anyone else besides God is called idolatry. We know that this was one of the notorious sins of the Israelites that they worshiped idols. They bowed down to the gods of the nations around them. But it's interesting that when the prophet Ezekiel addressed the issue of idolatry, he didn't mention anything about poles or statues or altars. He talked about idolatry or idols of the heart. In Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 1, Ezekiel writes, Then some elders of Israel came to me and sat down before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols, not up on the hillside, but idols in their hearts, and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Should I be consulted by them at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them, Thus says the Lord God, Any man of the house of Israel who sets up his idols, again, not on the hillside, not in a temple somewhere, but sets up idols in his heart, puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity, and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will be brought to give him an answer in the matter in view of the multitude of his idols in order to lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me through all their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord your God, repent and turn away from your idols and turn your faces away from your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel or of the immigrants who stay in Israel who separates himself from me sets up his idols, again, not in the temple, not on the hillside, but in his heart, puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity and then comes to the prophet to inquire of me for himself. I am the Lord I, the Lord, will be brought to answer him in my own person. I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb and I will cut him off from among my people so you will know that I am the Lord. This concept is picked up in the New Testament by Paul in his letter to the Corinthians. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and this is a fascinating text. We talked uh, earlier, I mentioned earlier about going to school on the Israelites this morning. Well, this is the New Testament version of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. 
Paul writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. So Paul is taking the the believers in Corinth on a road trip back to the Old Testament to the time that the Israelites were in the wilderness. We're on that same road trip this morning. Notice verse six, now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they craved. Do not be, what? What does it say there? Idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. I think this was a reference to them fashioning the golden calf. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Again, look at verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, here's the application. Let him, let any of us who thinks we stand take heed that we do not fall. Don't be cocky, don't be prideful. Don't be presumptuous. Don't, don't think you're above this or beyond this or you couldn't be, you're not susceptible to these same types of sins. But then Paul gives them hope. He says no temptation or trial. The word there for temptation and trial, are, it's an it's a, uh, interchangeable uh, word, if you will. That there's one word in the Greek for temptation and trial and it it all depends on the context how you translate it and so no temptation or trial has overtaken you but such as is common to man in other words you're not the only one going through what you're going through right now and God is faithful he will not allow you to be tempted or tried beyond what you're able in other words he'll never put more on you than you can handle but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you'll be able to endure it. In other words, the way out of this wilderness that we're in is through to the other side. And so God grants us the endurance that we need for these wilderness experiences. But then notice verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from what? Idolatry. Flee from idolatry. We're all guilty of it. We all have a myriad of idols in our hearts. John Calvin actually said that our hearts are idol factories. In other words, our hearts just are constantly cranking out new idols for us to worship. And so in order to discern what may be some of those idols in our hearts, we need to 
ask ourselves some questions. And I wrote down a list of 10 questions that we can ask ourselves, that you can ask yourself this morning to expose the idols of your heart. Question one, what wakes you up and keeps you going? What wakes you up in the morning and what keeps you going through the day? Number two, what do you want or wish most in life? What do you want or wish for most in life? Number three, what do you spend most of your time doing? What do you spend most of your time doing? Oftentimes that reflects or reveals what our idol is or who our idol is if we're spending time with this person all the time or, or, or uh, doing this particular thing all the time. So what do you spend most of your time doing? Number four, what do you talk about most? That's often a, a way to discern an idol is that you're constantly talking about it. Well, what do you talk about most? Number five, what do you think about most? What are you constantly thinking about and dwelling on? That's often an indication of an idol. Number six, what gets you most excited? In other words, when you get together with someone and, 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 uh, and you get to talk about something, what is it that you want to talk about? What gets you most excited? How about this, number seven, what gets you down more than anything else? Well, what gets you down more than anything else? How about this, number eight. What makes one day good and another day bad in your mind? What makes one day good and another day bad in your mind? For example, if you come home from work, guys, and you're like, hey, I had a great day at work. Was that because you were very productive and another day you didn't get anything done, and you come home and you're kind of depressed and say, man, I don't even know what I got done today. It could be that you worship the idol of productivity. How about this, number nine, what would you change about your life if you could? If you could change anything about your life, what would you change? That's a good indication of, of a potential idol. And then last question, number 10, and I saved the best for last, the least for me, this is the most convicting question that I could pose to myself and you could pose to yourself, and that's this. If I had blank, then I would be happy. If I had blank, fill in the blank, then I would be happy. That's a sure tip-off of an idol in your heart. I believe God that is using this pandemic to expose all the things that we worship other than him. Because we're dealing with the loss of, uh, of so many things that we, we often worship and delight in and we're beginning to realize how much they mean to us and how much time we devote to them like our health or other people relationships, jobs, bank accounts, stock markets, academic achievements, sports, entertainment, ease and comfort, restaurants, vacations, 
freedom, control, productivity. How about this? Me time. I know some of you moms in particular are struggling with that because your me time has gone out the window. There's no time for you because you're just taking care of everyone else in the family. Your husband's home, your kids are home, and there's no such thing as me time anymore. I would submit to you that the coronavirus has provided all of us a perfect opportunity to do an honest self-examination and address the idols of our hearts and repent of seeking to quench our thirsty souls with leaky cisterns that hold no water and get back to delighting in and drinking from the fountain of living waters who is God and God alone. Jeremiah said something amazing in chapter two, verse 12, be appalled, O heavens, as at this, and shudder. Be very desolate, declares the Lord. In other words, you should be shocked by what I'm about to say. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We should be shocked, appalled, by the idolatry of our hearts. And so I ask you this morning, what is God showing you about yourself through this crisis? What is God showing you about yourself through this crisis? What are some of the idols of your heart that have been exposed or are being exposed through this wilderness experience? Back in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter eight, notice what he says in verse five. Thus you are to know in your heart, right, he wants us to know what's in our heart. He says, thus you are to know in your heart, I want you to know at least one thing, that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. And so oftentimes, wilderness experiences, like the one the Israelites endured, was for the purpose of divine discipline. It was punishment for their parents, but it was discipline for their kids and their grandkids. See, there's a difference between punishment and discipline. Punishment is it's just, it's just judgment. Discipline is for training, for growth and development and maturing. Turn to Hebrews chapter five. Hebrews chapter five. Excuse me, Hebrews chapter 12, verse five is what I was thinking. Hebrews chapter 12, verse five. The writer of Hebrews talks about this divine discipline. 
He writes, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges or spanks every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, in all my years of parenting, I've never spanked anyone else's kids. Why? Because they're not my kids. The only kids I've ever spanked were my kids. And so, whether you believe it or not, kids, getting spanked is a good thing. Your pastor is a product of getting spanked a lot by mom and dad. Because <laughs> I was a little rebel, and I had all sorts of idols in my heart. And as the proverb says, that my parents wisely did not spare the rod. And it's what God used to drive the evil out of my heart. Verse nine, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So God is working in us through this health crisis, this economic crisis, to make us more holy. In other words, that we would sin less and become more like Christ, more righteous. And he's doing all of this because he loves us. And as his children, God's love for us should compel us to love him back, to love him in return. His continued faithfulness to us should make us want to stay faithful to him, especially when the pressure's off and God chooses to bless us beyond anything we deserve or anything we could imagine. Again, back in Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse six Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs and flowing forth and valleys and hills and a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive and oil and, and honey, a land where you will eat food without scarcity in which you will not lack anything, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. This generation of Israelites had much to look forward to. And I'm sure, just like we can't wait to get the coronavirus in our rearview mirror, 
These Israelites couldn't wait to get the wilderness in their rearview mirror. But oftentimes, the greatest test comes when the crisis is over and we come out of the wilderness because tranquility and prosperity are dangerous things because they lead to forgetfulness which often leads to unfaithfulness. And that was Moses' concern. That once this new generation of Israelites settled into the lush land of Canaan where they would not lack anything, they would get lulled into a false sense of security and self-sufficiency and they would no longer feel the need to rely on God for everything like they had to while they were wandering around in the wilderness. And consequently, they would not just forget him, but they would forsake him and start worshiping and serving other gods. And he warned them if that happened, the same fate would befall them as those nations that that they had displaced in Canaan. Again, look at verse 19. It shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you today that you will surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. You shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. Well, tragically, as you know, that's exactly what did happen to them. And because of their idolatry and because of their immorality, God raised up enemy nations to attack them and take them away into exile in order to lead them to repentance so he could once again restore them to the promised land and ready them for the coming of the promised Messiah. And when God eventually sent his own son as the Messiah, how ironic that the beginning of his public ministry came right on the heels of a God-ordained wilderness experience. Matthew chapter four, verses one through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. And he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Sound familiar? He was quoting from Deuteronomy chapter eight. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Another quote from Deuteronomy. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Again, another direct quote from the book of Deuteronomy. Don't miss the fact that not even Jesus 
the Son of God, was spared from a time of testing in the wilderness. This was not a test to see if he would sin, but a test to show he could not sin. Again, this, this was not a test to see if he would sin. This was a test to show that he could not sin. If Christ was a sinner, he could not be our savior. And that's why God wanted to prove his righteousness by sending him out into the wilderness. He was led by the Spirit of God, whereas Satan wanted to prove his unrighteousness. God wanted him to stand. Satan wanted him to fall. Satan's purpose ever since he was kicked out of heaven has been to thwart God's plan of salvation. And so he was under the delusion that if he could get Jesus to sin, then God's whole plan of redemption would be destroyed. That Christ would have to boycott his mission and all hope for salvation would be shattered. And people would have to spend eternity with Satan in hell. And the fact that Jesus came through this wilderness experience unscathed by sin is undeniable evidence that he truly is the son of God who has the power to save us from our sins. Consider just a a couple more practical implications that we can draw from Jesus' experience in the wilderness. The fact that he was quoting from Deuteronomy, or that he quoted from Deuteronomy, indicates to me that he was meditating on this book during the 40 days he spent in the wilderness. It shows the, the power of the, of the memorized and, and the um, uh, meditated upon word. There, there was no more applicable, relevant passage of scripture for Jesus to be thinking about it when he was out in the wilderness for 40 days than when the Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years. Again, a great reminder that we do not live by bread alone, but by the very word of God. The fact that Jesus endured his time of testing in the wilderness gives us hope that we can endure our time of testing in the wilderness. And furthermore, because Jesus knows what it's like to be tested in the wilderness, he can empathize with what we're going through and he can come to our aid. The writer of Hebrews says this in chapter two, verse 18, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted And the writer goes on to say that we do not have high priests who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. This is chapter four, verse 15. But one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Based on his season of testing and suffering in the wilderness, Jesus invites us to draw near to him with confidence and rely on him for mercy and grace to help us as we go through this wilderness experience.
Let's pray. Lord, based on what we have been studying today, we're confident that you are accomplishing many things through this pandemic. I pray that you would humble us and teach us what you want us to know so we can be who you want us to be. Expose the idols of our hearts so that we can uproot them and tear them down. Thank you for providing us both the means and the model to endure the wilderness experiences of life through the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And I ask, Lord, that you would help each of us to have a clear takeaway from this COVID-19 crisis as to how you have made us or making us more like your son, Jesus, because of it. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is our very life. And so we uh, just want you to know how grateful we are that we've been able to have this time together to look into your word, to study your word, to seek to apply your word to our lives. I pray that you would help us not just to be merely hearers who deceive themselves, but that we would actually put it into practice. With the help of your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.